Welcome to Oh My Lord, a podcast about Chicago history you didn't learn in school. My name is Alyssa, and I am joined by Mona. Hey, Mona, how are you? Hey, good. How are you? I'm good. We have an election here tomorrow in Chicago. Yay. Yay. And the city council had this completely off the rails meeting last week. One of them declared, I don't have a price. I'm not a prostitute. At one point in time, Lori asked for decorum, and they're like, this council doesn't have decorum. Chicago's having a special moment politically, I feel. We'll see. Yeah. Oh, and just because it's germane to this podcast or the name of this podcast, last week they announced plans to sell Malort in Ohio. So the good people of Ohio, now to quote one of my coworkers, can drink a liquor that tastes like Ohio. Now. Back to Streeter. When we last left him, the rich dudes had gotten the deeds to the marsh. The fair had ended and the mayor was assassinated. And now we are up to date. Boy, oh boy, are we in for an episode today. We're now in early 1894. And the lower and middle class people consult lawyers about Streeter's claim, and their lawyers instruct them to obtain an abstract title, which is a public report of land ownership, which Streeter mm. provides. It's not a real one, but Streeter provides it. So they're buying titles from him, and people hang their hopes on Streeter as the far right did on Elon when he bought Twitter. It's not a podcast if I don't have an Elon dig. And one attorney, his name was Francis X. Bush. He was certain that Streeter was a fraud, but he befriends him anyway. And tells Bush that his deed from a Native American tribe was lost in the U.S. General Land Office. I'll get to what I think this deed is a little bit later. because. It comes up again. Bush is in D.C. on a trip, and he confirms that the document never existed. But Streeter isn't aware that they know every document they receive. There's one thing we learned in 2022 was do not mess with national archivists. Oh. <laughs> it's amazing. They're going to be character here for a little bit in the episode. Streeter tells you. people, and I quote, we will have a city of our own up there, water, gas, electric lights, and policemen, and the two million club will be glad to annex us as soon as it needs us. Streeter's shifting his plans. He's going to build the city, and then the two million club, which is, I think he's referring to the rich dudes. Uh-huh. So that's the plan. So... From Klatt's book, as with big businesses, major real estate development was passing from strong-minded individuals to corporations, assuring a fight to the finish because a board of directors never gives up. Both the middle-class owners just west of the drive and in between Pearson and Walton Streets were chafing under Streeter's continued presence. Acting on their own, they hired Henry N. Cooper to serve as both policeman and spy. Cooper, formerly a Palmer agent, enters the story as a shadowy figure appearing like Mistopheles only in time of crisis. They've now hired this guy, Cooper, and he keeps the Pine Street Association apprised of every infraction that happens on Garbage Island, from selling of lots to boisterous gatherings. And it's worth knowing he surveils Trash Atoll for eight years. Well, yeah. In the summer of 1894, six deputies approach Streeter's chef, who, by his own telling, he filled the legs of three of them with buckshot. Wolf. Yeah, that hurts. I'm assuming it hurts. So the following, yeah. what? 
No, mm-hmm. say what you were going to say. I was going to say buck, buckshot is like not one bullet. It's like a bullet that like is a bunch of little bullets. So it's all over the place. It's messy, isn't it? I think that's what I looked up what it was because get to that in a minute. But yeah, it did sound painful. <laughs> and I'm not a gun person at all. In fact, I once recently referred to an AR-57. That's not what it's called. Mm-hmm. But So the deputies come, Streeter fills the legs of three of them with buckshot. The following week, a sheriff, accompanied by a squad, convinces him to surrender to assault with a deadly weapon. His defense was the buckshot wasn't deadly. Which is why I had to look up what a buckshot was. And I'm like, I'm missing something here. But no, I really, essentially, his defense is, yes, I did the assault, but it wasn't deadly. We're getting into Trump territory here with justifications and spinning the needle. But guess what? It works. Streeter is free again. Dude, this guy's awesome. I don't even understand how this keeps happening. But he, and it's also worth noting that at this point in time, the ownership of the lakefront is not an issue yet. So now we go into 1895, and the Chicago Tribune advocates for South Lakeshore Drive. South Lakeshore Drive. So remember, Lakeshore Drive was from the south end of Lincoln Park to Grand. That's what they were building. Oh, okay. And they want to just extend it further south. According to Clash, but the talk in exclusive clubs and loop barber chairs was less about land investment than it was about money. That July... More than 400 Democrats chartered a train and rode down to the state capitol in Springfield for a raucous parade in favor of the Silver Standard. These Chicago Democrats are 16 to 1, a correspondent wrote, 16 parts whiskey and one part water. I that's, feel- you know, that's a good point. How much of our, how much of our infrastructure was built around the United States with drunk up people? They're all liquored up. I'm sure tons of it was, Uh especially if you look at just all the. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hello, I'm Alison Larkin, writer, comedian, narrator, and host of The Jane Austen Podcast. Join me as we embark on a journey through Austen's timeless stories, starting with Pride and Prejudice. The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin is available wherever you listen to podcasts. The things that were happening, I mean, the juries were drunked up, people. Oh, yeah. I also feel like that should be another name for a nickname for Chicago or like Malort's tagline. Chicago, 16 parts Malort and one part water. A hundred percent politician. A hundred percent politician. And for fun, I looked into this silver standard versus the gold standard thing. And it's just nuts and I'm not going to get into it. It's like crypto versus the dollar. And I can't explain it. I don't understand it. But I tried to figure it out because there's a weird fascination with silver and gold and conspiracy theories. And I thought I could pull a thread out, but I didn't. I'm going to tell this story because it reminds me of is They're always trying to sell silver and gold to old people. 
And my grandpa at one point in time was hanging out in the coffee shop with all the other retirees. And one of the retirees tells him, the dollar is going to be useless. You need to buy gold. He went to my uncle, who's a stockbroker, and my uncle's like, no, you don't. Just keep your money. But my grandpa went ahead and bought either $1,000 or $5,000 of silver bricks, the kind they would rob from a cartoon in a cartoon from the bank. Oh, and so my grandpa has these bricks. And he doesn't tell anybody he bought them. My grandpa and grandma go to Florida every year, and they stay at one of the condos my uncle owns. My grandpa brings the silver with him to Florida. He leaves it in the closet at the end of the season and has to call my uncle up and be like, can you look and see if my silver's there? My uncle's like, why'd you buy it? My grandpa's like, according to your grandma, because I'm a dumbass. That's fine. So anytime I hear about silver, I just remember these bricks. Back to Streeter. So Streeter's making some money because he's selling these people hopes and dreams of property ownership. And before now, heretofore, he had been cautious. But this newfound wealth makes him take some risks. In May, he travels to Washington, D.C., asking the U.S. General Land Office to allow a homestead entry of, and I quote, 150 acres, more or less. Okay. It's not That's exactly precise. Oh, yeah. He had it is a lot of acres. It gets better. He had previously claimed four acres. So he's, I can't do math in my head like that, but that's some exponential more claiming of acres. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like he, he's getting some balls on him. And the city had restricted him to two acres. So the government rejects the application because it was the same property they turned down the year before when he claimed it was a military bounty land warrant. You might be wondering, what is a military bounty land warrant? And how does it apply here? Because it's come up a couple of times in the story. Mm -hmm. So the National Archives, again, weird little side character to this episode, from them, from 1775 to 1855, the United States granted bounty land warrants for military service, primarily to encourage volunteer enlistments, but also to reward veterans for service during the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Mexican War, and a variety of Indian wars, Indian removals, and other military actions during the 1850s. Well, yeah. Mm. Mm. Early warrants could only be used in military districts. So principally in Ohio and several other public land states in the former Northwest Territory. Eventually, Congress expanded eligibility to include service in the regular army and the Navy, as well as volunteer militias. By militia, they mean a real militia, not what we have as militias now. Bounty oh. land warrants, yeah. Bounty land warrants files can contain supporting documents such as statements and signatures of the witnesses. Bounty land warrants generally do not contain much personal information as the pensions. The government ceased issuing bounty land warrants after 1855. The records are part of Record Group 15, Records of the Department of Veterans Affairs. A couple things worth noting you can still look this shit up yeah nice yeah also they stopped doing them in 1855 remember oh. yeah and not for civil war veterans civil war veterans if you fought for the union you could get some sort of homestead act but this doesn't none of this applies to streeter which is why I took the time to read the whole thing. Because uh -huh. none of it applies to Streeter. But I want to underline, they keep receipts, even when a twice-impeached former president tries to abscond with them. Mm, fair enough. Yes. But about this little fateful trip to Washington, D.C., Clad asserts, far from being unproductive, the visit led the captain, 
to fellow Chicagoan William Cox, and they would engage in a fraud as if it were a vaudeville act. He goes on his name again? William Cox. Yeah, he sounds like a performer. Yeah. This is how Klatt describes him. For some time, Cox had emulated Streeter, but did not want to work as hard. While organizers were still planning the Columbian Exposition, he read that the land value along the drive was jumping. So he decided to buy lots in the path of the boulevard. Not from the owners, but from the federal government. So he went around the owners? We'll get there. He tried to go around the owners. His reasoning was this. He believed that the government owned Lake Michigan. But Lakeshore Drive, yeah, which is, it's a valid theory. Before Lakeshore Drive had been extended from Lincoln Park, individuals created a landfill property between the river mouth and Cedar Street without asking the government's permission. That's his reasoning. He previously had offered the government $162 to buy the land. Nice. They replied that they never owned it. And she was worth more than that. I'm sure she was more than $162. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know where Cox got that. We're not dealing with this real smart guy here. So, there was a third person in D.C., and his name was Jacob Nine. He was a local, low-level businessman, and he's the one who Mm. introduced the two. Perhaps, yeah, perhaps playing puppet master, he proposes providing more legal presenting paperwork. All right. Yeah. So he said, hey, get your paperwork to look better. So one oh, of the that's first, what it means. Yeah, le- yeah, like legal presenting, like it looks more legal. I didn't so, fully understand that, but that makes total sense. Yeah, I was trying to play with alliteration. Sometimes it doesn't work. <laughs> so one of the three, and we don't know which one, and this is key later on in the story, visits some office and they returned with a cash patent form. So one of the three goes to an office and they get a cash patent form. Then someone, again unknown, obtains a blank patent application from the land office. So they copy the information from the cash patent onto the land patent form. The final step was forging Grover Cleveland's signature. Yes! Dude, how can a fortune president signature? That's awesome. Do you want to know the reason why? Or their reasoning? Yeah. A reasoning seems obvious, these schmucks, but I just think that's badass. Can you imagine trying to do some shit and forging the president's signature and trying to get away with this? That's awesome. Yeah. They just kind of had the idea that presidents would never get called to testify. Wow. Oh, yeah. Woo, that's hilarious. I love it. Which is really funny because there is a lot going on with people surrounding Trump if it's executive privilege or not, if they have to be called to testify. So it's interesting. Yeah. Conversation's been having for a while. Also, fun fact, Grover Cleveland only ever signed one patent the entire time he was president. Oh, wow. From there... They create what is now the infamous letter. Everybody knew, knows in the lore of Streeter that he had a letter with a forgery from Grover Cleveland. But now we know what the letter says. Hmm. Do you give his bearers, heirs, the said tract about described to have and hold forever? In testimony, I, Grover Cleveland, President of the United States, have caused these letters to be made patent and the seal of the General Land Office to be hereunto affixed, given my, by my hand in the city of Washington on March 19, A.D., 1895, signed Grover Cleveland, President, Hoke Smith, 
Secretary of the Land Office, and S.W. Lamoro, Recorder of the General Land Office. A few things here in this plan. We've already got the balls of forging Grover Cleveland's name. While Cleveland was president, Lamoro was promoted to commissioner of the office, and they signed it as the recorder of the land office. So not the right job title. And Smith was the secretary of the interior. So not the correct person to sign the patent. Well, also, okay. Smith's first name was Oak, not Hoke. Oh, so then did that wrong too. Uh-huh. Huh. Now, I was thinking about it because I would say in 1895, this would be enough to fool a layman, a grocer or somebody who doesn't know and doesn't have the access of the internet to look up who is the secretary of the general land office. But then right. I had a thought that would probably work in 2023 as well. Change the names like, to make a current day analogy. This is like a pundit tweeting with enough information that it makes it seem true. If you're not actually informed, it sounds official. Yeah. yeah. Which is to say we just haven't, really gotten better at doing things. I think things. the only thing, difference between then and now is that majority of people can actually read the document. Not un- necessarily yes. understand it, but a lot of people couldn't right. read even read back. You're right. They couldn't read and they definitely didn't have the information. They wouldn't know. They just hear Grover Cleveland and like, oh, cool. Okay. So the rich dudes learn about the letter because they got the guy spying on the, on Streeter. And they want to examine it because they're probably like, did he really get a lot? Like anything is possible in this story. Yeah. So they arrange for a guy named George Detweiler of Toledo act as a prospective buyer. He asked to see the patent and Streeter goes down and shows him the patent. It's at Northern trust. He gets the patent and he shows him the patent. So a few days later, George Detweiler feigns interest in spending eight to nine hundred dollars, but he draws out the process, which really annoys Streeter because Streeter needs to get to Springfield since the Senate was going to, who is hostile, going to vote on a bill regarding the Lincoln Park board. So he lets this potential buyer hold on to the patent until his return. Well. According to George Detweiler, he, once he realized it was a forgery, he turned it over to the authorities immediately. It's more speculated that he gave it to the rich guys. The rich guys had their lawyers look at it, and then he handed it over to the authorities. So it makes, yeah. Meanwhile, in Springfield, things go Streeter's way because the legislatures fail to restrict landfills. And that's good for him because he can keep doing his landfill stuff. Sadly, yeah. Sadly, upon his return, he's indicted on charges of fraud. There you go. In August, he's apprehended by the Secret Service on suspicion of skipping trial and spends a few days in jail. Snap. Secret Service. Shit is getting real, and this is the strongest case yet. Yeah, but was how old was the Secret Service then? Like a couple weeks old? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, not not to disrespect, but I'm just I'm finding joy in the formation of this country. <laughs> it is yes. I didn't look about all the secret. I just know that the Secret Service was there, and the Secret Service is they do other things than just protect the president. But I yeah. don't know where the jurisdictions go. But this is like he's in trouble. Financial the, fraud. The federal government is in, involved. They're the ones that came to get him. It wasn't just the constable. Street escape. <laughs> nice. So this is how it happened. Remember, there were three people in on the scam. And I said it was going to be noteworthy that we didn't know exactly who did what. They all pointed the finger at each other. 
and the government couldn't establish who did what, and it created reasonable doubt for all the players. No, man. I know. So (laughs) the rich dudes have, at that point in time, they're aware of the letter. They have the U.S. General Land Office conduct an official survey. And this is the first time they've done it since 1821. Whoa. Yeah. 1821. Chicago wasn't even a city yet. Yeah, I was going to say, that was back when the U.S. was a baby. Yes. The U.S. was a baby. Chicago was just a homestead. Getting that survey done provides a compelling agreement to prohibit Streeter from the land. I don't think Streeter's aware of this, but he does sell his south side property and he returns to the north, to his garbage island, with a white tent. He's greeted by guards that were hired to limit his access to the approximate area of garbage island. They're going to just limit him to where he needs to be. And they're living in a tent. So Clatt writes, and I'll tell you my thoughts on the other side of it. Clatt writes, you might think Winters would drive them off, but the Streeters needed a continuing presence to support the legality of their claim. The Cap'n and Maria would get up in their tent at dawn if it suited them. Always wanting to appear elegant, Streeter trimmed his beard and washed it with ammonia. Anyone who wants to come down and talk with him was welcome. Streeter would also. (laughs) That stinks, bro. That's like vinegar. I know. Man, this guy, he lived in a garbage island. So that guy probably. My God. He comes off like Linus where he was just bugs all around the guy. Pigpen. Oh, Linus that guy. Yeah, he does. I mean, I got, I like that little detail that he's committed to looking dapper. So he trims his beard and then smells bad because, okay. Anyone who wants to come down and talk with him was welcome. Streeter would also walk downtown to see light plays. He loves popular songs, but doesn't care for vaudeville or quote unquote Frenchified drama. Drinking was Maria's (laughs) only pastime. Clack goes on to say, there is no mention of swimming, boating, or fishing for them. God created the lake only to increase their real estate. Oh, no. And it's moments like this where I am reminded that this is not an ideological struggle, but it's solely based on greed. Yeah, just, yeah. And also, like, the adventurous spirit to see what you can get away with. That's how it also comes off. Yeah, yeah. It is the adventurous spirit to see what you can get away with. But underlying it is just greed. Yeah, I turned with my opinion on Streeter in this episode. And really with that line. I don't know. Maybe it's because I spend so much time on Lake Michigan. And for me, it's a sacred space. And to think that it was just like a greedy land grab on his behalf. Yeah. Meanwhile, real estate values continue to rise and Palmer keeps blocking people from building their mansions on Lake Shore Drive. Oh. Yeah, because he still has his vision for multifamily dwellings. Some of them were built, but after Palmer dies. Now, it's also important to know, Streeter continues dumping in Lake Michigan until 1910. Though, in 1899, the federal government passed a law about littering in major bodies of water. Wow. Chicago was a huge major body of water in the United States. Yeah. It's also important to know, in 19... So, in 1885, we had this torrential rainstorm, and they were concerned that the river water was going to get pushed two miles off the shores of Lake Michigan into our drinking water intake. That's when they formed the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District and built the Sanitation and Ship Canal, that's with a P, which opened 
on January 2nd, 1900, which reversed the entire flow of the Chicago River. Now, oh yeah, he's dumping in to Lake Michigan, which is now getting all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. Oh, yeah. Because the lock wasn't there until the ni- one of the 1930s. It was, I looked up the date. It was after our story with Streeter ends. Yeah. So it's illegal to dump in major bodies of water. And that, and it's also two miles away from our drinking water intake. The guy washes his face with ammonia. He's probably <laughs> drinking lead at this point or mercury. The guy doesn't give a flying fuck. I, is he able to walk straight? Can he? Does his vision okay? I don't know. I think so. I'd love to see medical reports of this guy. Or he did he? He probably he was like MacGyver as fuck. Probably he probably sewed his own shit. I don't know. Go ahead. I don't know. Okay. So meanwhile, over in England, there are some scammers running what's called the McKee script, which was involving bribery to claim the entire lakefront. But at that point in time, the McKinley administration halted it. And that left Streeter to believe that the lake was federal property. What I think happened there is like they're, these British people are bribing. So, of course, the federal government's getting involved. That's like an international thing. So during this period, Streeter sells lots to a group of people agreeing to a separate government to defend their due. Do you remember in episode one? You asked me if this was going to become a separate nation. Yeah. I'm like, is he trying to build his own country? Yep. And here we go. Really? By April 5th, this is a meeting on April 5th, 1899. In a hotel room that he uses as an office, the men of Streeterville vote that the district of Lake Michigan, that's what they're calling their new country, would use the U.S. Constitution and flag. Fuck yeah. (laughs) Fuck yeah. I'm starting to like this guy and not at all. I'm sorry, what? Never mind. I was like, is he trying to be like rebel without a cause or is he actually, you know what? The founding fathers ain't shit. I can just fucking do this shit anyway. What are they going to do? There's a little bit on the strategy that we'll get to later. Now, it's also no- worth noting that, so the, oh, by the way, he called the district the district. And it's worth noting that this is more aggressive than before. But it's also important to know that's the only thing they discussed in that entire meeting. Like, they decided that they were going to be separatists. And all they could agree on was, we're going to use the U.S. Constitution and the U.S. flag. Okay. All right. Yeah. One of the residents of Streeterville was a guy named William Niles. He was, quote, a man with dreams of a hero combined with muddle-headedness. Is he the Niles? The Niles that's in Michigan? The Niles that's in Illinois? I don't think so. Clatt says... Considering the captain as a crusader for the common man in this era of romantic, quote-unquote, little wars, Niall suggested that they take back the shore by settlement. The ragtag army could establish a fort around an abandoned transient shack called the Boathouse. Basically, Niles came up with the idea of just having little wars and having a little army, and they could claim back the shore. The lake. Oh, yeah. Then three weeks go by. So three weeks after their little separatist session, the citizens chose officers. So Streeter names himself as the territorial governor and Niles is the military governor. And Jacob Nine, our low level businessman, is declared the district supervisor. So we've got a territorial governor, a military governor and a district supervisor. And then they drop no- and then they drop notice of evictions to some of Chicago's most prominent citizens. 
I'm reading this list and I didn't include it because I can remember the names. Fairbanks, the Ogdens, the Newberries. They're not just evicting people on the lakefront. They're going to where the millionaires live in their mansions. Yeah. There's, there was yeah, massive jealousy or it was like the war on the rich or something. And, yeah. and also like, these were big founding fathers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ogden was our very first mayor. Yeah. Just even the people that I didn't recognize, I'm like, oh, that person has a street named after him. That person has a street named after him. That person has a street named after him. I forgot to mention when I was telling you about Maria that she has two kids from her first marriage. I remember that, though. I remember. Okay. I couldn't remember if I forgot to tell you. Her son, William Jordan, would unexpectedly arrive on Trash Island exactly twice. And it was only when it looked like Streeter's scams were doing well. So he shows up about now. Streeter doesn't like him. And apparently Streeter usually likes everyone. But he does not like his stepson. For fun, I tried to look up more about the kids. And the first thing I came up with in Google for Maria Streeter was a LinkedIn profile for someone of the same name. Now, oh. I normally wouldn't tell share this information with you because it would oh. seem superfluous. But I got to read to you her job title or her how she describes herself. Real estate investor and value creation expert. Which just given our, our Maria Streeter, just I don't know why it struck me as funny. Really wanted to find out more about her kids. It's also important to know that Maria is absent for this whole po- portion. And it's speculated that she's either staying in Chicago with friends or with family in Detroit. But really, you can't blame a woman for wanting running water. Or not wanting to sleep next to Ammonia Man. Yeah, Ammonia Man. So the evictions had a deadline of May 1st. But it brought as little bloodshed as we've seen around Trump's indictment. Meaning that there wasn't a reaction. Bringing us to May 4th, 1899. A.K.A. Streeterville Independence Day. Oh, fuck yeah. No wonder this guy got his own ville. The least they could give this fucker. Yes, and if I was a bar owner in Streeterville, I would exploit the shit out of this day. Oh, yeah. The 38 male residents swarm Trash Island and they place guards along fictional frontiers. They've decided what they're going to take out of Trash Island, and they place guards. Now, interestingly, a 70-plus-year-old guard for the Newberries threatened to shoot any member who did anything, and they retreated. Like this pathetic militia just retreats being threatened by a 70-plus-year-old guard plus fuck is a 70 year old doing guarding shouldn't he be enjoying his 70ness his retirement <laughs> the fact that the guy made seven years old in that era he he <laughs> should be a prophet at that point that's true maybe he was a prophet yeah you never know and he was like, I'm a prophet, I can tell you. Nothing's going to come of this mm-hmm. thing except for he's going to have a statue in a neighborhood named after him someday. But do you see how, like, we're indirectly celebrating rebels and then anytime somebody wants to cross the, wrong, the street the wrong way, we ticket them? It's such hypocrisy in American history. I have some thoughts. I'm really conflicted about this because I love the rebel aspect of it. But then, and this is for me, like, I deal with it a lot personally, like just in a struggle. I'm also looking at where the entire thing lacks integrity. Case in point, there was a period, I want to say summer 2021, where Chicago was a little crazy. Nobody gave a fuck about covering up that they were just drinking in public. And it's like the courtesy to put it in another cup. 
and it's not like I'm a teetotaler <laughs> or I'm not and I'm not prudish about it, but it's there's something about the social order of things that I find comforting, not necessarily that I always approve of it, but with I look at what would it be without the what's the alternative? Mm. That's just what it is for me. And I've been dealing with that as I read about this because they are rebels. And I have to look at just because I do a good like sticking it to the man too. I can't, I don't know if I'm verbalizing what I'm saying. No, I know. I get what you're saying. Like they're, re- they're rebels just to be rebels. So it's kind of to put a little effort into it and or those of you like put a little effort into trying, try a little bit. Otherwise, yeah. Then, yeah, and it's and I'm I've been noticing this more and more post COVID. If we're post COVID, but this sort of I'm gonna do what I want when I want, as opposed to how society functions. Mm. Is I was on the train, and it was me and one other guy, and then these kids, and they had like by kids they were in their twenties, but they had to have been from the suburbs, and. 12 of them just get on. They just got their Miller lights in their hand on the train. And the guy, the other guy, and I just look at you, what the fuck? It's very much, what are you going to do about it vibe? Right. What are you going to do about it? And the truth of the matter is, we're not going to, oh, okay. So I'm not going to do anything about it because I'm not going to approach anybody. It's kind of like, there's a lot of people now smoking on the red line and the particularly the red and the blue lines have been bad, but nobody's <laughs> going to say anything. Yeah. And then you can just, I can just see if we, those minor things that we've all agreed on and are illegal, if we let those slip, where do I sound like I'm an old person just saying, get off my lawn? But where do you draw the line? And the people that monitor it that are supposed to be upholding the norm, they're not there anyway. They're probably at some, some tail part. They could give two shits. So it's also, oh, we're just going to be lawless then? Then, okay, well, here we go. Yeah. And then complain when things happen. Oh, we didn't see this happening. You weren't looking. Yeah. So that's where, okay. But back to these guys, because this is a good, the story gets hilarious quickly. So they attach a pine pole to the quote unquote boathouse and they raise an American flag. And a newspaper calls it Dump Heap Republic. <laughs> that's good. So then they also, find this is when the new news agencies were also popping off too, right? right? Yeah. This is a really great this you picked a very interesting nexus point uh, that really can ex, can a nexus point in Chicago slash American history that really does explain a lot in the modern era. Say more about that. I don't know. Okay. So if we were to go 200 years before this, it, you, I don't think you would see such a such a coming together of of local ways of elitist, the elite, and it, remember Chicago at this point is also becoming a really globalized city. This is early industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. There, there's a lot of attention in this area. There's a lot of attention, and also land land is running out. So if you didn't have your land grab in the late 1700s, early 1800s, then by this point, there's, I don't know, not a lot to speak of. And or the the industrialists are really are big now. They're such a big deal. So the next hundred years from this point does show a sense of what are you going to do about it? I got enough money. I got enough influence. I know the system. I can manipulate it to my way. The, America in general didn't act like this in the 1600s. I don't think there was a level of white power at this height. I might be wrong. It might be, I might be wrong, but this just feels like such an interesting nexus point. Okay. Yeah. It is the coming together of Chicago. For example, Marshall Field, we don't think about Marshall Field that he was like the Jeff Bezos and he was one of the richest people in the world. Yeah. But didn't he probably have paranoia about money? He had a hundred and some odd bank accounts and like he had his own cool, he was cuckoo nana on his own accord, but. We often celebrate these guys. Like, again, yeah. we give them a town, but we don't know they're, we idealize people and don't actually remember why we're idealizing them. And you're digging up 
some of the chaos that was actually going on. I think the other thing that I'm noticing, and there's a, we're going to do, I'm going to do an episode on John Kinsey, who's considered to be our first white settler, our first European settler. Shout out John Baptiste Point de Sable, our first non-native settler. And mm -hmm. the history around him, like he's got a bridge named after him. He's got a street named after him. And he was not a good guy. Were you taught about Kinsey in school, for example? No. Okay. He just wasn't a great guy. But all the history we had at the time was written by his daughter-in-law who never knew him. Ooh. Yeah. So I think one of the things that's coming out, and this is why it's a, an exciting time to things is we now know we now have source material we know how to get the source material we know that if we want to look up something in the national archives they got shit from like 1775 so that's what makes it really interesting is getting the i don't feel when i look at history and i don't feel like it was whitewashed so much as we just didn't have all the facts all the time and so it was whitewashed uh, initially, uh -huh. but I don't think if we if we got taught something that was whitewashed, it was because it was whitewashed initially. Oh. Uh. It is I'm being too generous, but of course John Kinsey's daughter-in-law is just gonna make him sound like a, a great guy. Yeah. And also, I think that in a lot of in a lot of non-white communities, I don't know if they know they, they tend to generalize that the, the white man is evil and all this other stuff. But if they knew the details of it, it sometimes it almost might be dangerous because, dude, white people act like this. Fuck everybody else. And we'll just do our own thing, too. What the fuck? That that isn't taught in school. We're taught about Benjamin Franklin, his glasses and some kite. They don't talk about homie. that's like, yeah, guess what? I'm going to start my own little country in the middle of Michigan. Lake Michigan and pollute it. Yeah. And this is why I'm complicated because it is also the white male privilege of it all. Oh, totally. This is this is the epitome of white male privilege. And it's not like your Harvard degree level white male privilege that everybody's just assuming. And it's ammonia as dirty as homie. Just it's it's worth noting back to the example that I gave on the L train. The other guy on the one other guy who was on the train with me before the Bud Light carrying, White Claw carrying, Suburban Nights came on, was a person of color. Yeah. And he just videotaped it. Because you know that if a person of color, a big group, yeah. 10, 20-something people of color got on the train with their Budweiser, just openly, Ew. you know, yeah, yeah, they would call the guy a drunk. They would say there was something wrong with him. They wouldn't say that he's so self-righteous that he can just straight up brazenly abuse the law in front of everybody. No, right. he's not going to get in trouble for it. Or there was one time, and I, this is a moment for me that I really got myself, my, my privileges. Technically, Navy Pier is non-smoking, but people smoke on the pier. I used to mm. work down on the pier, and I'm like, hey, I'm going to go have a cigarette. And one of my coworkers was a person of color was like, aren't you afraid you're going to get arrested? It had never occurred to me. Uh, so yeah. it's going to come up to my middle-aged white lady. It blew my mind. So I think that's why we're another nexus point on the laws have to apply to everybody. Yeah. Which is a major talking point with Donald Trump getting indicted this week. If he can get in trouble for paying off a porn star, they could come for you too. Okay. So we now have, we're to the, the part in Dump Heap Republic where they have a resident read the Declaration of Independence for the district. That's dope. Do you want to know what it says? Yeah. Okay. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for any body of men to take up arms in defense of their property and legal rights, a cause must exist, dot, and whereas cities and states do not grow except by annexation, and as there are no records to show that the city of Chicago or the state of Illinois 
ever annexed any of the territory east of the United States Survey of 1821. All of the hundred or more arrests made by the police of the city of Chicago in the district of Lake Michigan have been unlawful and were made with malicious intent, either for hire or personal malice. Huh. That's the independent. That's the declaration of independence. That's their declaration of independence. I love a good declaration of independence. It sounds like it could be a Donald J. Trump post on true social. Uh, No, actually, I don't think he's intelligent enough to even write half that. That's true. He did write out that he'd been indicated. He tweeted out or truthed out that he'd been indicated instead of indicted. That is their declaration of independence. Also, one of their rationales, and I understand this, is that this entire time, nobody from the city, the county, or the state has taxed Streeter for the plots of land he was selling. So he figured it didn't belong to them. Nice. All right. There we go. Yeah. Streeter's not wrong in some of his conclusions because we just didn't have, well, laws become laws for a reason. We didn't have laws around this because we didn't foresee somebody trying to like have the region of Lake Michigan or the Great Lakes succeeding from Chicago and the state of Illinois. Oh, and I did ask former Coast Guard guy that I work with about ownership now. And inside the harbor, so inside the break walls, it's owned by the city of Chicago. Uh, Lake Michigan. Oh, nice. Okay. Okay. Streeter, of course, holds a press conference. And he tells journalists that Landfill Lagoon could be a place where criminals of all classes could seek refuge and extradition would be, would need to be negotiated. Wow. Wow. It's like he's trying to create his own little Australia or something. Don't know what he's trying to do at this point in time. (laughs) Dude. Because you're going to live there and you're just going to have criminals of all classes coming for, yeah, they're coming for sanctuary. And also fun fact, but because remember they, they are a separate Island or separate land, but they're using the U S constitution And I think that they have to extradite between state to state. That was a whole thing that came up with Trump last week when Ron DeSantis is like, I won't extradite him to New York. And people are like, that's unconstitutional. Anyway, he wants now to have Murder Island or Murderer Island. And throughout the day, they spend Independence Day fortifying their land, building fences, protecting it. Meanwhile, in town, rumors are circulating that Streeter tried to buy 40 guns and he was denied. This is like bizarro Alcatraz. Maybe someday we'll do it like in the the Alcatraz. But also just imagine not letting a person buy a shit ton of guns in a short period of time and them not screaming about their Second Amendment rights. Dude, he's so specific. He's so extra. I'm like, okay, who is this guy reincarnated? Is he some guy from... Was he Nero? Who is this cat that he's coming in with such a life? Like this life that he's living right now is so specifically extra. (laughs) It is very extra. And then I couldn't find a better way to sum up what happens here. I'm going to go back to the clap book because he just wrote this sentence. The impending drama ended in a farce. The U.S. Marshal arrives. So we've got the U.S. Marshal here. We've got Tommy Lee Jones being greeted yeah. by. Yeah, the only U.S. Marshal I know. Tommy Lee Jones being greeted by three characters <laughs> accompanying two district police officers. So there's apparently bodyguards for the police officers is what it sounds like. And the police officers flash their badges at him. He just retreats and returns to the office to deliberate with the U.S. attorney, Solomon Bertha. And they take no action that day. So they sent Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones, they flash badges, which I remember playing like FBI when I was a kid and we would make our own badges. And that's what comes to mind, paper badges. And he's going to go back to the office. And then the U.S. attorney's like, we're not going to do anything today. 
So <clears throat> at this point in time, it's the evening of Independence Day. And all of Streeter's guys, they're in a shack that displays a canvas sign reading courthouse with a stockpile of guns and ammo. They are ready for battle. And finally, at 1230 that night, Streeter leaves to slumber in his hotel room slash office, at which time the district police chief, Murray, he deserted the district. Mm. On the morning of May 5th, City Hall, they have a meeting, and they decide to destroy the district. Ooh. Oh. I know. That must have smells. I'm, I'm like, are they going to get the Haymarket treatment? Oh, yeah. As 100 police officers. 100 police officers approach. Streeter takes a seat in his chair and he picks up a newspaper and feigns indifference. The, he also really loves attention. He really does love attention. So the guards tell the cops not to advance. And Inspector Heidelmeyer said, and I quote, in the name of the people of the city of Chicago, I command you and your followers to disperse. I found followers an interesting word choice. Streeter replies, I have nothing to do with the city of Chicago. And he's still reading his paper. The inspector says, then, sir, I place you under arrest, instructing the officers to place all the men under arrest. Nope, not the Haymarket treatment. They all got arrested. The district of Lake Michigan went out with a whimper and nary a shot was fired. Wow. This would be a great movie. We were discussing that at work the other day. We should should do a movie about Streeter's life. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Unless at this point it would incite copycats. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it could. You don't the thing of it is you're like you just don't know what's gonna happen anymore. However, I'm just gonna let you know that this is where we're gonna end this episode. You have to wait to find okay. out what happens next. This is my thought about it. At the end of the day, Streeter is a grifter. And he's making his money by nebulous means. I don't think he's a hero, but someone who wanted to make a buck. And the law protected him. Yeah. Also, the laws were being made up as they were going along with this kid. He was helping create laws with his all-over-the-place-ness. That's true. That's true. But I feel like there was already a law if you shoot a police officer in the leg. Yeah, I also just, I don't know. It cracks me up that. Well, I think Streeter knew he didn't stand a chance against 100 cops. Any thoughts for you? For me, he's special. (laughs) And we're not done with the episode yet. I don't know how to say goodnight to him. But what I'm learning about, not just him, but also all the connections that he impacted or that are impacting him at this point. Yeah. And sometimes it seems yeah. like he doesn't know what he's doing, but he does know what he's doing. Whereas, you know, sometimes people just create it as a reaction to others. He definitely knows he's agitating them and he's doing it purposefully. And that's why all the other times when one cop showed up, like he could get away with shooting at them and they're going to leave. But when a hundred are there, he knows what he can and cannot get away with. Yeah, they got a hundred. At this point, did they even have 100 cops working in Chicago? Did they have to pull reserves or something? They even have 100 cops. I don't know if they had 100 cops. I think they still had the Pinkertons on speed dial from the Haymarket. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I should have looked. I'll look up how many cops we had in Chicago for the next episode. 
But so, you don't have to. But this guy really loved attention. He probably loved seeing 100 cops. Wow, man, I'd bash it. And he embellishes everything when he tells the stories, which is part of the whole thing is we always had just his account of things, which again, were never outright lies. He just embellished it. If it was a three, if it was a three foot fish, he caught a six foot fish. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. All right. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support us by hitting subscribe and leaving a five star review. Tune in next week for more Streeter shenanigans. <laughs> hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.